Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Just notice this. It seems there were two things, principal things, that Jesus focused on between his resurrection and his ascension. The kingdom of God and the spirit of God. That's what Jesus talked to them about. The kingdom of God and the spirit of God for the 40 days. And then verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now just think about this. They've been talking about the kingdom of God and the Spirit of God. Not surprising that the disciples would ask, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom? That's what they've been talking about for 40 days. So the disciples are not as dull as we sometimes think. They see some things clearly. They just don't see it quite as clearly as they will after Pentecost. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you're doing for us, in us, by your grace through us the very thing you did at the creation, word and spirit come together and powerful, transformative things happen. Oh, Lord Jesus, may something like that happen for us today. And from us, through us, out into the world around us, to the glory of your name, grant us your spirit now, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Sorry I kept you standing so long, but... uh, Sometimes you have to preach a first sermon before you can preach the real sermon. So this is Pentecost Sunday. It's the Sunday in the church here where the church celebrates the coming, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. The Spirit promised by the Father, the Spirit whom Jesus then sends. If you look at the end of Luke 24, which is kind of a hinge that connects both Luke and Acts, the first book to the second book, Jesus says that he will send the promise of the Father. So the Father and the Son are engaged in this. The Father makes the promise. The Son, after his ascension to the right hand of the Father, sends the Spirit in fulfillment of the Father's promise. So Father and Son are engaged in this indivisible unity and this indivisible work and this indivisible operation with the Holy Spirit in what begins to unfold with that first Pentecost. So let's, let me say four things. Let's look at four things out of this text. The first thing to notice is the unique role of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's important for us to do two things as we come to this doctrine of the Holy Spirit, teaching of the Holy Spirit. The first thing is to understand that there is an individual, an indivisible unity among the persons of the Godhead. That's historic 
Christianity. It differentiates Christianity from every other religion on the planet. There are other monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam, but Christianity is distinguished from them because it has this unfathomable, frankly, this incomprehensible understanding of the nature of God, that God is one God, that he exists in power and glory, that he is infinite and eternal and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's the one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't ask me how that works. All the analogies break down. It's just, it's just core orthodoxy. But notice that there is a distinction of persons within the Godhead. Uh, there is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, but there is the Father and there is the Son and there is the Holy Spirit. And, and the work of the Son, the person of the Son, is distinguished from the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you summarize that? How do you sort of get at that? And, and this, of course, is something that, that the church wrestled with in the first centuries of the life of the church. They struggle to understand this. They've They've articulated it. It's been articulated and re-articulated, and we still can't plumb the depths of it. But here's the basic deal. Here's how this works. As multifaceted as the ministry of Jesus is, if you look at the ministry of Jesus across the pages of the New Testament, you see him engaged in a multifaceted ministry, so the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a multifaceted ministry. But here's the difference to keep in mind, generally. And don't, you know, don't pin me against the wall because human language and images do fail us at points. But the basic difference is this. In the ministry of Jesus, he secures the blessings of the kingdom. He secures the blessings of the kingdom. He earns the blessings of the kingdom. He is awarded with the blessings of the kingdom by his Father because of his willingness to fulfill the Father's mission for him. And so in his incarnation as he comes into the world, but then especially in his life of obedience and his substitutionary death for sinners like you and me, the Father rewards, if you will, the obedience and sacrifice of the Son by giving to the Son all of the blessings of the kingdom. He's the one who secures them. This is how somebody shared this with me years ago. If you think about the persons of the Godhead and their works both in creation and especially in redemption, the Father thought it, the Son bought it, purchased it, earned it, and then the Spirit brought it. Okay? The Father thought it. He conceived it. Together with the Son. So you got it so hard because you can't divide these people up. They're indivisible. Okay? But as you look at how the Spirit works and the Son works and the Father works, it's the Father who in the council of eternity conceives the plan of redemption and then the Son is commissioned to come into the world to secure all of the blessings and benefits of redemption. And then it is this wonderful work of the Spirit by which the Spirit brings the blessings that Christ has secured by his life and death. And that's where we are here. That's where we are in the book of Acts. The Son has come. The Son has purchased forgiveness. The Son has purchased cleansing. The Son has purchased reconciliation. The Son has purchased justification. The Son has earned adoption. 
And now the Holy Spirit comes to take all of these many, many blessings and begin to apply them to his people, to those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. So we distinguish the work of the Spirit from the work of Jesus just as we distinguish the person of the Spirit from the person of Jesus in the Godhead, in this indivisible God. Now, what's the real significance of this? Okay, here there, we've made the first point we, that you see the persons distinguished and differentiated in the text. It's Jesus, the Son, God incarnate, who is promising the person of the Holy Spirit, who will come and who, when he comes, will come with power. The end of Luke 24, Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. So there you see the distinction, the differentiation between the persons So what's the significance of this multifaceted work of the Spirit? What does it mean? What is it all about? Well, let me suggest the additional three things. First, and this is the point uh, that probably is going to challenge some paradigms. It's probably going to challenge some of your understanding. But I want you to listen to the text of Scripture and listen to what it says about this. The first of these three things is that the age of the Messiah is here. The age of the Messiah is here. The age to come is here. Okay? The second thing, the reign of Christ is being realized. The age of the Messiah is here. The reign of Christ is being realized. And that has the benefit, the effect of this third thing, which is that the business before us is clear. The mission of the church is clear. What it is that we're to be about as a church is clear. This church, this little body of believers, this habitation of the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, this little bit of his temple which he is erecting today, our business is clear. So first, which is really second because the first was the distinction between the persons. The age of the Messiah is here. Now let's listen to the text. The age of the Messiah is here. The age to come is here. This is the one that may sort of rock and roll you a little bit. The end times are here. The end times are here. Listen to the text. Look at Acts chapter 2. Jesus to his disciples says the time is going to come, the Spirit is going to come. Listen to how Peter interprets in his first sermon, explains what it is that happens at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 and following, through the first several verses, records the coming of the Spirit in fulfillment of the prophecy that John made. John said, I baptize you with water. After me comes one who is greater than me because he was before me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what happens at Pentecost? Christ, who is ascended, pours out the Spirit, The Spirit comes. The evidence of the Spirit's presence is that the building shakes. He comes like a mighty wind. The Old Testament image is ruach, the Spirit, that word, that Hebrew word that can be translated breath or wind or spirit. He comes like a mighty gushing, rushing Spirit, and tongues of fire rest upon people's heads in fulfillment of John's prophecy. He will baptize you. Who? 
Whom will he baptize? He will baptize the church. He will baptize the followers of Christ. Just as Christ was baptized by the Father with the Spirit, anointing him, empowering him, clothing him with the Spirit, so now Jesus, risen and ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, this is thrilling, pours out his Spirit upon the church, the same Spirit, to clothe, to empower, to enable the church. And the evidence of it, is tongues of fire, the mighty rushing wind. And then these people who have been baptized of the Spirit preaching the gospel, heralding the gospel, so that people from various language groups hear the gospel in their own language. They hear the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom. They hear the announcement that the king who died is raised and ascended and ruling and reigning. And they hear it in their own language. So the nations then begin to hear this great good news, this great gospel. And how does Peter understand this? You you probably know the text. You know the story. These guys are speaking in tongues. People who are listening who can't understand what they're hearing because they're hearing foreign languages, languages that other people do hear. They think they're drunk. They think they're inebriated. They think they were out too late last night. They're still hungover. Something strange is going on. And Peter says, no, 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 no. No. Here's what's happening. And he quotes Joel 2. Verse 14, Acts chapter 2. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What was uttered through the prophet Joel? What is happening right there on the first Pentecost? The promise of the Spirit uttered by Joel, uttered by Isaiah, uttered by Ezekiel, uttered by Zechariah, Peter, under the inspiration, the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter, out of a whole lot of texts that he could have chosen, picks Joel. And says, what Joel prophesied is being fulfilled in your hearing, before your eyes. Now look at the language that is used in Joel to describe what is happening. Verse 17, Peter quoting Joel. And in what days, dear friends? In what days? In the last days, God declares... I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In what days? What days is he referring to? He's referring to the day of Pentecost and all of the days that would follow. The last days, in those days, all of these phrases that are used across the Old Testament. Sometimes the prophet will say afterward, or God through the prophet will say afterward. Sometimes he will say in those days. Sometimes he will say at that time. Sometimes he will say in the latter days. But all of those different phrases, just like Joel, the particular passage from Joel chapter 2, all of those phrases are pointing to this time when Messiah comes And when Messiah comes, the Spirit comes with him and is poured out 
and the work of restoration, renovation, the time of blessing begins. Begins. Okay? You know, I've said this a lot of times. I'm not here to pick a fight with anybody. I'm just asking us to look at the language that the Bible uses. And the Bible uses this latter-day language, last day's language, at that time language, to describe what happens at Pentecost. When the Messiah comes, the Spirit comes, when the Spirit is poured out, when the King is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, the kingdom is inaugurated, and to use the great words of Isaac Watts, which we only sing during Advent. Use the great words of Isaac, of Isaac Watts. He has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And when Jesus rises and is seated at the right hand of the Father and pours out his spirit, the days when those blessings begin to flow as far as the curse is found have begun. They've begun. We're in them. So here we are, 20 centuries removed from Pentecost. And so many times, so often, we're asking, when will the end times begin? And what will be the evidence of their arrival? When will the end times begin? And what will be the evidence of their arrival? And again, I'm not here to pick a fight, but let me just say to you, If you're standing here looking down the corridor of history, waiting for the end times to begin, you're looking in the wrong direction. And if you're looking for wars and rumors of wars and famines and desolations and persecution and all of these other things to be characteristic of the end times, you're right to be looking for those things. Jesus in Matthew 24 told us that those things would be characteristic of this whole period. So if you're looking for wars and rumors of wars and and other evidences like that of some time out there in the future, you're looking in the wrong direction and you're not seeing the greatest evidence of the fact that they're here. And that is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the church, empowering the church coming together with the word of God that has been entrusted to the church and that is to be heralded in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The greatest evidence of the fact that the messianic age is here, that the end times are here, is the presence of the Spirit poured out upon the church. Now, I think I'm in good company when I suggest this to you, and the good company that I keep is the Apostle Paul, and the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. Let me give you a couple of phrases, a couple of passages. 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to remember their Bibles and to look back, to look back to the Old Testament for instruction. And he says all of these things, the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the experience of the people of God across the Old Testament is written for their instruction. It's 1 Corinthians 10. And then he says this, all of this happened to them as an example to us, to us, listen, upon whom the end of the ages has come. 
has come. The end of the ages has come. It's not out there at the end. The consummation of it is out there. That's why I encourage you to keep this basic program of redemption before you. There is Passover, Exodus, there is first fruits, and then there's final consummation. Yeah, we're waiting for the consummation. Yeah, we're waiting for the final harvest. The final gathering of this people whom the Father had given to the Son and for whom the Son has died. The final ingathering of that whole people. The final renovation and restoration of the whole of the heavens and the earth which is begun already in you. You are the new creation. You know that. You are the new creation. It is begun in you. It isn't finished. It's not finished. Your bodies are breaking down. You're losing your hair. All kinds of evidence that it isn't finished. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that while this outer man is wasting away, yet this inner man is being renewed day by day. And it's all pointing us in the trajectory and the direction of this time when we put off these tents and we take on a building. What's the difference? The difference between a tent and a building is that a tent is an impermanent thing. A building is a permanent thing. That's 2 Corinthians 5. Okay? You are all the evidence you need that the end of the ages has come. The consummation is still out there, and you're all the evidence that you need of that fact as well. So the end of the age has come upon us. Paul says, Hebrews 1, verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Same language, same image. See, when the Messiah comes, he brings the last days with him. When the Messiah comes, he brings the Spirit with him because the Messianic age is the age of the Spirit. When the Messiah comes, he is anointed by the Father with the Spirit, clothed with power. When he then ascends to the right hand of the Father, he gives to his people what the Father had first given to him. The evidence of the presence of the age to come, which is the Spirit. Now, who was Hebrews written to and for? It was written to Hebrews. <laughs> it was written for Jews. And i got to tell you, if you're a Jew in the first century and you hear somebody say in the first verse of the letter that's coming to you, you hear that phrase, in these last days, you go back to the documents that have formed and shaped you across the days and years and decades and centuries of your life. Okay. At that time, afterward, in those days, he's saying that those days are these days because the Messiah has come. Precisely, my dear Watson. Precisely. So, that's the first thing. Actually, the second thing. This is the age of the Messiah. He has sent his spirit as the first fruits. Now, let me anticipate the question that I know comes. It's a question that comes, it comes to me, from me, a lot. It comes from my wife, a lot. As we walk through the struggles and the difficulties and the heartache of this, of this pilgrimage that God has us on. Barbara and I were just talking about this last night. I'm saying this is such exciting stuff. The new age is here. The age to come is here. Barb said, well, sometimes it sure doesn't look like it. Okay? And my response to that, folks, is simply to say it's all a matter of your perspective. It's all a matter of perspective. If you live on the other side of the cross, 
the gospel, the gospel is present in promise form. The gospel is not present in its more enlarged and open. Paul refers to it as a mystery, this mystery that God from before the foundation of the world is going to gather not just one people in one particular place, but, a, but an international people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. He's going to gather them from all of the nations of the earth. But if you live on the other side of the cross, you look, you look out at the whole of the world and the whole of the world is enshrouded in darkness. And the gospel is in one place glimmering faintly. And that place is that little strip of real estate along the eastern end of the Mediterranean plus a few other places where some little congregations of dispersed Jews find themselves living among the nations. That's the only place you can find the gospel. You only find it in promise form, and you only find it flickering in that piece of real estate and out in the dispersion. If the Old Testament prophets were here, if the Old Testament prophets were here, and, and they were to hear us saying, we're waiting for the end times, they would look around and say, what are you thinking? Look around you. Look at where the king has taken the gospel of the kingdom in the intervening 20 centuries. I look around this room and I see people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. Most of you look European, some of you don't. But you're just, you know, you're the tip of the iceberg. A wonderful tip. Look, the gospel is going to go has gone, I trust will go farther and deeper in Tanzania in a couple of weeks. The gospel is in China. There are one, by some estimates, 120 million Christians in China. Seven or eight percent. The gospel is in South America. The gospel is here in Vero Beach. 20 centuries ago, it was not any of those places. It's going farther and farther, wider and wider, and deeper and deeper every single day. You see, it's all a matter of your perspective. If the Old Testament prophets were here, they would say, what are you, are you nuts? You think the gospel isn't here? You think the, the end times aren't here? You think the end of the age hasn't come? Look around you and see what's going on. So it's all a matter of perspective. Again, we live between inauguration and consummation. We, we live between Pentecost and final harvest. Okay, but Pentecost is here. And the spirit and the fruit of what the spirit does is all around us. And that leads us to the second thing, third thing, I'm sorry. The reign of Christ is being realized. And we can be a little more brief with these last two things, as is always the case. The reign of Christ is being realized. The blessings of the Messiah are flowing as far as the curse is found. Here's a striking thing from the text. Look back at Acts chapter 1. I mean, I'll tell you, this is, this is the kind of stuff, you know, you've read Acts a million times or a thousand or a hundred or ten or whatever. And, you know, we read over these things, we become so familiar with them, we, we kind of lose the significance. This is a stunningly significant thing. Look at the first thing that Luke says to Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus 
began to do and teach. Began to do and teach. Now he's writing a second book, right? He's referring to the first book. If the first book is about what Jesus began to do and teach, what logically do you conclude about the purpose of the second book? It's about what Jesus continues to do and teach. The the book, in its Greek title, is simply called Acts. My Bible has up here, this is the, the ESV, my Bible up here has the Acts of the Apostles. Now the church debated, has debated, about whose Acts are being referred to across the centuries. Is it the Acts of the Apostles? Is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Is it the Acts of Jesus? I don't know, can you say that option D is all of the above? Because that's exactly the deal. But what's striking about this verse is is Luke saying the first book was about what Jesus began to do. The clear implication is that this second book is about what Jesus continues to do. What Jesus continues to do. And what is Jesus continuing to do? This is what I'd love for you to come out, please. I don't often really plead with you in this way, but I would love for you to come out this evening because I'd like for us to think a little bit about what it was that Jesus began to do and which he continues to do down to this present day and until his final return. And what he begins to do is establish his kingdom. That's what he does. He comes as a king who is a suffering servant But you remember the original promise of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, the word of judgment pronounced by God upon the serpent. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. So what happened at the cross? What happened at the cross? The king who comes as the suffering servant is bruised, but he is raised victorious. And what is he doing now? My dear friends, Here's what he's doing now. He is crushing the head of the serpent. Paul says at the end of his letter to the Romans, basically, be of good cheer. Because Satan is about to be crushed under your feet. Be of good cheer. Because Satan is about to be crushed under your feet. Under whose feet? See? Connect the dots. Under the feet of the church, the people of the king who have been clothed with the power of the king, anointed with the power of the spirit, who go forth heralding the good news of the kingdom, and who as they herald that good news, dethrone, cast down, and crush under their feet the arch enemy, the adversary, the devil of hell himself. I said to you last week, I believe Satan is bound. I believe he is bound by the preaching and heralding of the gospel. Just at, here, here's an analogy. I think this works. I think it makes sense. Challenge me tonight. See, I keep enticing you to come. Are you saved? I hope so. And I hope you would also say, yeah, but I'm not. I am saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been saved. You've been redeemed. Passover has come. Exodus has come. 
but you are being saved. You're in the process of being delivered more and more from the bondages, the powers, the darkness, the rebel inclinations and tendencies in your own hearts. It's important, again, it's important to remember that the kingdom of God isn't just about them out there. It's about us in here. And more of the reality of the kingdom needs to be worked out in my life. I am being saved. I think it's a very legitimate thing to say. He is bound. He has been crushed. And he is being bound. And he is being crushed as the gospel of the kingdom and as the king himself in the person and the power of the spirit heralds that gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, you know, the scriptures tell us we've got an enemy in the world and they tell us greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. So the king is extending his reign. Again, at the beginning of his ministry, he was clothed with the spirit. He was anointed with the spirit. He was anointed with power for his earthly ministry. Now he, having received the spirit, is raised to the right hand of the Father and closed the church with the very same power with which he was closed. So that the church might continue the work that Jesus started, which is the work of destroying the prince of darkness and all evil, overcoming all evil. Did you get what you said this morning? I I love to surprise you with these things. What do we mean when we say your kingdom come? Rule us by your word and spirit. In such a way that more and more we submit to you. You see how it begins with you? It doesn't start with people out there. If you think the enemy's out there, you're mistaken. The enemy's in here. It's, it's an enemy that's been redeemed, that's loved, that's secure, that's safe. But I don't know about you. I got all kinds of rebel tendencies in my heart. And if I'm the only one in here, then you need to be preaching and I'll sit out there and listen to you. There's no difference between us, just a difference of call. Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Keep your church strong and add to it. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that, you are, that in it you are all in all. That's what you said. That's what you confess. And that is what is going on right now as the gospel of the kingdom is heralded. So Christ is extending his rule and his reign. And then that makes, in the last place, very clear what is the mission of the church. Read Acts this week. When you get to the end of the book of Acts, just as the book of Acts begins with Jesus talking to his disciples about the spirit of God and the kingdom of God, Paul, this is so cool, Paul is in Rome He is in the capital city of earthly empires. He is in the place where authority and power are consolidated. And if you read the last verses of Acts chapter 28, the end of the book, Paul is in that place, and what's he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, this invisible kingdom which is more real and which is eternal than physical kingdoms which can be seen but that come and go like dust in the wind, to quote Cary Livgren. And what's so interesting is there is a sense in which Acts doesn't end. 
It's an open-ended book. There's a period at the end of the sentence. But there is Paul in Rome, the capital city of earthly empires, heralding the good news of the kingdom of God with all that it means. And what that means for us is that we continue to write chapters to that story. You, you and I do. We, they're not infallible. They're not inerrant. That ended at the end of Acts 28. But you see, it's an open-ended thing. The gospel is still going forth. The good news of the kingdom is still being announced. And you and I, right here in this place, under the lordship of Christ, empowered by the Spirit who was poured out upon the church, we continue to write chapters. Or actually, we should say, Jesus continues to write chapters to that story. What's our mission? Our mission right here in this place, and by the grace of God to the uttermost parts of the earth, is to be witnesses of these things. What things? Life, death, resurrection, rule, and reign, outpouring of the Spirit upon the church until Christ comes again to complete what he started. What a privilege! What a privilege! I said to Barb, this gets me excited. Preaching about these things gets me excited. You're saying, time out, would you stop? And I will. But I want us to see and understand everything that we need to fulfill the purpose of Christ, Christ has given to us in the person and power, the clothing, the enabling of the very Spirit who clothed and empowered and enabled Him for the business of inaugurating the kingdom. Now that same Spirit is given to us as we continue to write chapters in the ongoing story of the kingdom of Christ in the midst of the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for making us your children. Thank you for giving us this unspeakable privilege. Lord, help us to see it more clearly. Lord, please keep us, keep us from getting to the end of our lives where we look back and we say, oh, oh, I wish I'd seen it. Let us, by your grace, enable us by your grace to live under your rule and authority and by your power, differentiating this nation, your people, from all of the nations of the earth and empowering this nation, your people, for the well-being of the nations of the earth to the praise of the name of Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Let me have you stand and we'll sing together the last hymn. Number 347, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let's stand together and sing.